You are listening to Studying Pixels, your trusted podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. We've really got a jam-packed show for you today because we're going to introduce you to a new format. We're just going to call it reading, because obviously when studying pixels, it is at some point necessary to do some reading. And we figured, why complicate things? <laughs> yeah. Just call it what it is. <laughs> just call it what it is. Of course, in these reading episodes, we're going to do a couple of them. I'm not sure whether it's going to be every month, but something in the ballpark, probably whenever we have the, the time to actually dig into a text. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through these texts, essential game studies literature. And um, if it's a book, we're going to usually select a section of that book. So we're not going to do like a whole book discussion. That would be a little bit too much. But yeah, we're going to focus on the parts that the book is most renowned for and that it's most referenced. Uh, you can follow along, of course, if you like, and read these texts in advance, but you don't have to. I think we're going to be able to convey the content of these texts in such a way that everyone can follow along. Even if you don't study, even if you're not a game study scholar, we want to make it a in a framework so that everyone can follow along and appreciate uh, those texts. Absolutely. And I think what what I'm really excited about is that uh, our goal with this is to kind of give give folks not only a primer on game studies, but also how you can discuss these texts with people or think about them perhaps for a term paper, like we mentioned in our uh, Plus episode this month. Yes, exactly. I think it's a wonderful way that you can get a first taste of what game studies actually is, right? Because I'm going to draw from things that... Um, we that I that I also use to teach introductory game studies classes and such things. And when we're done with those, we're going to see uh, where we go next. Um, if you have any thoughts and questions or suggestions for texts that we should read, then please let us know. You can contact us at podcast at studyingpixels.com. Uh, just write us an email or reach out via social media. And of course, before we get started, we need to tell you that Studying Pixels is a free and independent podcast. We rely entirely on your support, and that is why we offer Studying Pixels Plus. This is essentially our Patreon program. So if you support us, you get three wonderful things at once. First, you get our sincere gratitude and the good feeling of supporting an independent show. Secondly, you get a lovely sticker. It says, I am studying pixels and features a very cute mascot, Pixel Coon. And thirdly, you get a monthly plus episode, as Dan, you've just already mentioned. And this month, we did a plus episode on how not to write a term paper. So if you want to have some crucial hints on things not to do when writing a term paper, then please go ahead and get Studying Pixels Plus. You would help us a lot. You can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Now, shall we jump into some reading? Yes, let's. Ah, I'm going to take a sip of tea first. I made myself a nice Earl Grey tea with some uh, some soy milk. No, sorry, some o it's oat milk, not soy. Ah, see, this is milk. this is the perfect beverage for what we're doing today. Ah, <laughs> curling up with a nice, nice tea, nice mug of tea. 
yeah, on a beautiful autumn Sunday. Now we're going to talk about uh, Roger Calois. Roger Calois, he's a French sociologist and philosopher. He was born in 1913 and he died in 1978. He was involved in the intellectual circles of Paris and he was primarily concerned with the sacred, the myth and games because they are more closely linked to one another than one might originally think. There's something fascinating to me about these early game studies scholars. Um, they mm. all seem to have similar predilections and preoccupations yeah. with things like the sacred versus the profane, ritual, and where games fit into that. I think it might be because games have just so many attributes of rituals. Mm. That, as you would see, like literals, liturgies, proceedings. Is it liturgies or liturgies? Liturgy, I think. Uh, liturgies. Mm. Uh, it, it, they have some similarities in the way that they are uh, things that you can repeat. They are things that take pl place in a confined space. And there are also many things, at least when I think of, you know, like, let's say, religious uh, rituals. Um, they are objects that have a different meaning assigned to them than they would have outside of the ritual, such as a tiny piece of dry bread, you know, which becomes the body or part of the body of Jesus, um, which outside of that ritual would just be like a nice little cracker. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, Kawa, he was also obviously closely involved or his biography is closely tied to the Second World War. Um, he fought against fascism and he spent the majority of the time of the Second World War in Argentina and in Latin America, where he published anti-fascist papers and magazines. Now, I think we don't need to dive too deeply into his in entire biography. This is not a report that you would want to hear in a seminar. Um, let's rather talk about the book. Um, the book that we're going to talk about today is Man, Play and Games. The original title, Dan, I don't speak French. Le jeu et les hommes. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> I'll go with you on that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is Le jeu et les hommes is somewhere around um, the the games and and people, the games and humans or play and humans. I think, yeah, literally it would be... Yes, the, yeah, games and people, right? Or the games yeah. and the humans, yeah. Yeah, man, play, and games, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know why we're, we're relitigating the translation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so this was published in 1958, and it was translated and internationally published in 1960. So, um, well, one might be able to imagine at this point already that this is not about video games, because in the 1960s, well, there were some, let's say, early forms of video games, but definitely you, you wouldn't play Uncharted in the 1960s. <laughs> so he was, he was smart, but he wasn't prophetic about exactly. <laughs> video games, right? <laughs> yeah, but there were a lot of games around, because what, what people sometimes tend to forget is that, yes, games in the sense of video games, they are a new medium. That's something that uh, Jesper Yule says, uh, a scholar that we might encounter at a later point. He says that, yeah, they are a new medium because they rely on computer technology and such things. They are, however, also a very old medium. One of the oldest media at all because games have been around in various forms for thousands of years. And at the time that Kalwa was writing, there was not much there when it comes to 
game studies literature, right? Game studies was not a thing at the time. It was not a field. It was just emerging that people would specifically engage with the subject of games at all, which is why he ties his work back to one of the most influential scholars um, in the field of game studies, which is Johann Hösinger. Johann Hösinger, just to briefly reiterate this, Johann Hösinger, he... Um, researched games. He was a cultural historian from the Netherlands, and he strived to develop a definition of play, which he did. And Roger Calois, he refers back to this definition in order to propose his own understanding of games. Now, wonder, should I, should we recite that definition in its entirety? I think that may be helpful. It might be helpful. Yeah. I mean, um, Maybe we can first mention that uh, Dan, Dan and me, we've already done a reading of Johann Hösinger's Homo Ludens, of this very influential work, in our the With a Terrible Fate podcast that was our previous endeavor. Dan, you're still involved with the With a Terrible Fate podcast? Yes. And Yeah, and, and we, we can link that in the show notes. So if you say, I want to listen to that first, because it was chronologically the first uh, work then uh, feel free to listen to that episode first and then come back. But we're not going to rely on you knowing that. Instead, we're going to give you the key factor of the text Homo Ludens by Johann Hösinger in advance here, and that is his definition of play, which reads as follows, quote, Summing up the formal characteristics of play, we might call it a free activity, standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being not serious but at the same time absorbing the player intensely and utterly. It is an activity connected with no material interest and no profit can be gained by it. It proceeds within its own proper boundaries of time and space, according to fixed rules and in an orderly manner. It promotes the formation of social groupings which tend to surround themselves with secrecy, and to stress their difference from the common world by disguise or other means, end quote. So, I hope you all have written that down now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that an important thing, and maybe the, the most interesting part of any kind of academic discourse, is that for those of you who absorbed what Stefan just said, you may have noticed that while that is a very lovely definition, it's also sort of a broad definition. And so... It does make sense that someone working in the same field, like Calois, would come along and say, but it's harder to classify this. We There are things that we need to break down and ways that we need to understand how those breakdowns happen. Yeah, and I think that's, this is the most interesting contrast between Johann Huizinger, who wrote this definition of play, and Roger Calois, because... Heusinger, he was primarily focused on developing a first understanding of what play is and what its essential mm. attributes are. Whereas Calois, he then reads this definition and he ponders it and he researches and then he <laughs> thinks, okay, cool, but there are so many different games in this world and they, it, it just seems weird to have like one definition applied to them all. Instead, we need to look at specific categories, specific classifications of games, which is a profound challenge, obviously. He, he acknowledged that too, I think, in the very beginning of the part that we're going to read, which is his classification of games. Mm. It's chapter two in the book. And at the very beginning of it, he first points out that it is quite a tough endeavor 
to classify games. Because when we think about it, I think this is still a problem that when we talk about games, we classify them in very different categories. Like we can even classify one and the same game in very different categories. Yes. I mean, plenty of examples. Um, I'm sure that when we say video games, everybody has maybe their first thought of a game, but that would maybe not be the first thought of somebody else. And then even when you're talking about both of those first thoughts, like my, I may think of a video game as an RPG, and Stefan may mm. think of a video game as a run-and-gun shooting type game. Now, yeah. I would say we're both right. They're both video games, but how do we classify them? How, what distinguishes them? Yeah, because it, it matters. You can talk about the activity as was uh, just pretty much what you did, like where you say that it's a shooter or it's a, a jump and run. But we can also talk about narrative or aesthetic, let's say genre elements, and we can talk about like psychological horror mm. all of a sudden. Now, obviously, these two categories of being a shooter and a psychological horror game, they work on completely different levels. And and this goes on. Um, obviously, Kawa doesn't talk about video games. We're doing this uh, this transfer now into contemporary discourse. But you can also distinguish it by the number of players. You talk about single-player games and multiplayer games. Or the business model. We talk about free-to-play games, games as a service, triple mm. A games, indie games, you know? Right. <laughs> it's There's so many different ways in which to categorize games, and they all work... Um, I'm not going to say independently, but they are definitely not on the same kind of axis. You can't say, is it a shooter or a single-player game? Or is it free-to-play? It's like, well, <laughs> that doesn't make sense, you know? Right. It could be either of these. Yes, it's, yeah, one doesn't, uh, one doesn't preclude the other. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Hoesinger, excuse me, not Hoesinger. So, Kawa, he went ahead and started to develop a classification that he could used to bring all of these different games together. And he specifically aims to point out contrasting examples of games to make clear what he means by crucial terms that he developed. And those are the terms that we're going to discuss now. Those terms are, first of all, four main terms. It's Aegon, Alea, Mimicry, and Illinx. And in addition, he develops two more terms that to some of you might be familiar, ludus and paedia. These are the six terms. Aegon, alea, mimicry, illinx, ludus, and paedia. And we promise you that by the end of this episode, or by the end of this main story, you're going to know exactly what these things are. So let's jump in. Chapter 2, the classification of games. And shall we just directly start with the first one, with Aegon? Yes, I think uh, makes makes the others make a little more sense too. It's it's got this nice little uh, this accent on top of it. I think it's from yes. it's from it's from it's from Greek, right? Aegon? Oh, I was <laughs> I I imagine it would be, but I was thinking uh, uh, very French. Add as many accents as you possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's this this beautiful little triangle over mm. the O, so that I think technically it should be pronounced as Aegon. But yes, I don't know. Of... Most, pe most people just say Aegon. Right. Like the name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, we've, what, is, what is this exactly? So he goes Aegon. into, yes, this, this first one, which I find to be, uh, and, and maybe, this is, maybe this is an ill reading on my part, but I do find that this is 
this is something that it's important to understand before we go into the other ones, because it does yeah. seem like this is maybe what we may think of as a game with with rules uh, to begin with. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It is, Aegon en encompasses competitive games. It's a competition between several players. That's the core of it. And obviously the goal is to win that competition. And in order to win... I think this is a very interesting point. We try to create an artificial equality. Mm. So this could, for example, mean if you have people doing, a, let's say, a sprint, a sports. You know, the classical sport events are pretty much the, the, the paradigmatic example of Aegon. We do a sprint, and then obviously everyone has to start at the same time and at the same, on the same line, right? With, has to sprint the same distance. And because you want to know, you want to isolate all other attributes from the competition except for a certain particular skill. And that mm. skill in this case is speed. Who can run the fastest over a short distance? That's the thing. You want to know who out of these, let's say, 4, 10 or 40 people can run the fastest over this distance. Yes, there's a, there, it's a very closed system. There's a clear objective. There are clear parameters. And it's something that is meant to be won by somebody who's participating in it. Yeah, who can train for it, who can try to improve on his skills, who has to be disciplined, who has to have a certain, you know, strength and character to push forward with his training mm. and to be, to be disciplined to actually win that sprint. And the same thing is for, this was like a very, very, very physical example, but the same thing is true for such things like chess. Chess is a very intellectual game. And in chess, we also say that at the beginning, the, the chances must be equal. We eliminate mm. all other factors. We try, we, every player or both players get exactly the same pieces, right? Ex positioned in exactly the same formation across the board so that none, nothing else shall matter except for your, let's say, intellectual capacity to outsmart uh, the other player. That's the ideal scenario of chess. Yes, and it, it, the chess example is particularly interesting to me because he calls out that there is, um, by necessity in chess, there are kind of checks and balances on the different pieces and the different components of the game that each player can use either to his or her advantage or disadvantage based on that intellectual capacity that you were talking about, the knowledge of the game, the way that they're able to actually play it and utilize the different pieces with their, with their different moves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, it's also something where you could say this, the strive to make things equal at the beginning goes so far that there are there are sports and there are forms of competition where let's say someone who's more advanced a stronger player gets a handicap mm. so that it's harder for them if you play against someone who's much more skilled than you are in chess then you might want to you know alter the rules a little bit or you know change some things up if you want to have a let's say fair competition but uh, the problem is that impossible to create a total equality mm. we can't do that in that sprint for example it is a problem that you know um you've got let's say if you run in a 
on, on a round track, then the lane that's the closest to the inner part of the of this round, of this circle, that lane is obviously shorter than the out, outer lanes. So what we try to do is then, in case of Aegon, we try to cycle through or we draw lots. In, it, we leave it up to chance who begins. Or with chess, white always starts, you know? Mm. Or you flip a coin, who has the ball first when you play football or soccer, right? Uh, so... <laughs> We try to account for these things. And I, I feel like that Aegon is, in this sense, very intuitive. And we can clearly find, if we want to always like look towards video games, how it, mm. how it applies there, we can <clears throat> find this in competitive games pretty much directly. If we think of first-person shooters, uh, my, obviously my first example, because I played it, I played it a lot in my youth, was as Counter-Strike. Oh, sure. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Counter-Strike, you have... You have two teams, and both of these teams are, you know, equal in the move set that they have. They run at the same speed, they jump the same height, they have the same kind of equipment at their disposal. They can all per have access to, you know, purchased weapons at each round or equipment, um, depending on the skill that they have already uh, uh, amassed, you know, or depending on the kills that they have already amassed. So, um, we can pretty much find this directly in video games as well. Would you say? Would you say that too? Absolutely. I think the Aegon? first, the first thing that comes to my mind, <clears throat> maybe apart from shooters um, like Call of Duty or Counter Strike, um, I would also think uh, uh, fighting games. I think yeah. are a very. Uh, I mean, to if you if you ever um, look online or if you know someone who really loves fighting games, the way that they talk about the rules and the way that the game breaks down. It is very much, um, I think, the, the word that is used is balanced. There's this drive to have a that that equality that Aegon strives for, right? And so each person can go into a fighting game. Each character has their, uh, you know, pluses and minuses. And you learn the ins and outs of how not only that character works, but how the game works. So lots of rule learning in fighting games. There's a lot of meta gaming involved, especially mm -hmm. if you're on an esports level. Then it's downright it down, comes down to studying to the millisecond exactly, um, which also, especially when updates come out mm. and uh, players need to keep track and teams need to keep tra keep track of what changes because it often happens. I'm not an expert in this field, but when you look at things like Street Fighter or even Super Smash Brothers, I think, mm. that certain characters over time turn out to be a little bit too strong, like OP, overpowered. Yeah. Uh, so uh, game company then looks at it, and if they agree and find this is a problem for the competition, then they, is it called, they nerf they them, They nerf right? them, yes. They nerf <laughs> yeah. them. They, they make them weaker in other words, uh, or they, they try their best to balance them with the other characters so that they are no longer overpowered. Yeah, so a punch from Kirby in <laughs> Super Smash Brothers <laughs> doesn't, yeah. it, it, it takes a little bit less of, of health away, or I don't know, I, I have no, I have never really played Super Smash Brothers, I shouldn't use it as an example. <laughs> well, I think that uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite in-game examples of this is in, um, in a, a a recent, semi-recent game, Dragon Ball Fighters. Um, mm. It's actually part of the narrative that all of the characters who in the show are at various different levels of skill, something happens in the game that equalizes all of them so that mm. it, it makes the fighting narrative make sense where Goku versus a child 
is a fair match because of what happens in this universe. So I think that it's built into fighting games. And I would also say uh, into shooters, um, like online mm. shooters, that there is, uh, it must be fair. It must be equal. Yeah. You, you cannot have an advantage unless maybe you've earned it and then you can use it. Yeah, exactly. And there are pretty strict rules about this that players come up with as well. I mm. remember that from playing Counter-Strike in my youth that there was there was a, a weapon, a sniper rifle, I forgot its name now, that would be it would be possible to kill someone with one shot regardless of where you hit them yeah. on the body. And the thing is that what people would do is like quick scoping. That's like this thing where when you instead you don't specifically aim down your sights, but you just when you know that the enemy is roughly in the middle of the screen, you press aim and immediately shoot. Mm. So you have like a, a very little delay between aiming and shooting. And then you can get very lucky and just simply kill someone just like that before they've even realized that there's someone uh, that they should be fighting. Right? <laughs> there's even an opponent <laughs> present. And this this rifle was actually quite, uh, it was not banned, but it was... Um, it was frowned upon. Whenever anyone used this in a game, it was like, oh, come on, you know? Isn't isn't that, you know, this reminds me of, uh, <clears throat> not to dig too much into Hoisinga, because I, I know that we're in conversation with him with Kelwa, but it does remind me of sort of the idea of the magic circle. You know, you've broken the rules that we all agreed on here. You can't use yeah. that sniper rifle. We all agreed that that is somehow making this game less fair or worse. So, yeah. you know, you're you're somebody that I don't care for <laughs> if you're using that sniper rifle. And, and then you get kicked out of a LAN party. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to the second category that Kalwa comes up with, and that is Alea. These mm. are games of chance. Games of chance are not about defeating an opponent. They're not about a competition in that sense. Instead, it is about defeating fate right what a wonderful phrase to, yeah. to describe this kind of game it's it is just it all comes down to basically the idea of whether fate favors one or the other you could also mm. say chance favors one or the other but the point is that in games of alea in games of chance um you are not in control or at least not in the sense that you are in Aegon. Mm. You basically just, you uh, you do a bet, for example, and then the only thing you can do is sit back and hope that everything works out. You roll a dice or you flip a coin, throw a coin, and then you can just wait and see what the result is. Yes, there's no, there's no strategy as such. It really is just yeah. that two, if two people are playing a game of dice, for example then they're both at the mercy of the dice. There's yeah. nothing they can do to influence the outcome. Exactly, exactly. You can't roll the dice. You can try to roll it in a very specific way, but, you know, that's not particularly reliable unless one side is heavier than the other. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, in Alea, players are passive. And Kalwa, he says, quote, on page 17, the player is entirely passive. He does not deploy his resources, skill, muscles, or intelligence. All he need do is await, and in hope and trembling, the cast of the die. Professionalization, application, and training are eliminated. End quote. So this is a strong contrast from Aegon. And the thing is, though, and this is the first point that we must acknowledge here, 
we can see now that these classifications, these, these terms of Aegon and Alea, they describe polar opposites of games. But, of course, there are a lot of games that combine the two. He specifically points out that, you know, most card games combine mm. the two because you get dealt your cards. Let's say you play blackjack, then you get the cards and still you have to have a certain um, anticipation and you have to be a little bit smart to see whether you're going to hit, you know, or whether you basically take another card or whether you're going to stand on where you are in order not to lose. In poker, this is most pronounced where, mm. yes, there's, a, I would say, almost an, an involvement to equal degrees of the chance of which cards you get. And then the skill of how you play them, how good you are at bluffing and such things, right? Right. I think uh, when I was reading this section, I thought immediately to um, <laughs> Japanese scholar that I am, uh, uh, the card game Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, or mm. Magic the Gathering is another example, where this is a, a really wonderful blend of these two types of games in the sense that as the player, you have knowledge of what's in your deck, but you don't know how the... You don't know what the hand will look like. And yet yeah. there are ways to then manipulate how the game goes based on the cards that you get in your hand. So exactly just like poker, but I think um, uh, one of, uh, for me anyway, that's more my experience. I'm not a big poker guy, um, but trading card games, they definitely, uh, there's a thrill to making making the um, the fate work for you <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Mm. To set up a an entire deck of cards in such a way that um, you need to wait and plan out for the perfect moment where you get the right card and then you can really hit. That's at yes. least how I always played a Hearthstone. Oh yes, Hearthstone, great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, such things like you know, randomization of loot would mm. also be part of this. When you run around in Diablo, and I know that just recently the Diablo, what was it, Resurrected or something? Yes. The first Diablo game, <clears throat> or the, no, the, sorry, the second Diablo game was uh, remastered and re-released. And um, there it is the case that when you defeat enemies, you get random loot of a certain quality. So you mm. know it's going to be like a rare a rare weapon that you're going to receive, but you don't know what kind of weapon it's going to be. Uh, so you have to... You, Partially, you just have to farm and you have to see and you have to combine. You know, it's all a bit random. Roguelikes yes. are also part of... that's. This is where the Alea structure is almost uh, like implemented into the design of the environments where the environments constantly change. They are, to a certain degree, random. And sometimes you can get very lucky when you play a roguelike and you get like your favorite weapon pretty much at the beginning and you can blast through most of the game uh, yeah. just by using that weapon and upgrading it. And other times you're super unlucky and you have to make do with that weird little blob gun <laughs> that just <laughs> does like super indirect damage and you can just run around and hope you you don't get killed too quickly. So yeah, those are those are games of Alea. But still in these cases, in, in the case of that roguelike that I just spoke about, you still have a profound amount of, of skill involved because you have to know how to handle that gun. You have to know how to outsmart enemies. You have to be quick with your reflexes. So Aegon and Alea, they go together very well. There's a, there's a quote on page 18 um, where he says, Aegon is a vindication of personal responsibility. Alea is a negation of the will, a surrender to destiny. Um, and I, I think that what I love about the idea of, so you mentioned a, a roguelike where maybe you're dealt a bad hand, so to speak, where you have mm. items that just don't work for the 
task that you're trying to perform. But there is a certain um, inherent satisfaction to bucking destiny when you make it work for you anyway. Yeah. And I just I wanted to call that out because we've all been in a situation where I'm sure in Returnal you had a horrible hand dealt to you and you still made it work uh, to some capacity, right? And that feeling is very precious. Yeah, it's a bad excuse to say like, oh, I got the wrong weapon, so now my run is going to suck. Mm. Mm-hmm. You want to still, it's it's still, <laughs> there's still a significant amount of Aegon involved so that it is possible and you can make it um, right. if you are skilled enough. So yeah, those are two different, so I would say those are two different categories that go together very well and I would say most frequently occur together. Yes. Unless it's some extreme examples like just flipping a coin where there's no skill involved whatsoever. There are a lot of things where, where they occur mm. together. What I find interesting is that he says they have also certain commonalities. Maybe that's a last point we should definitely um, draw attention to in this context. On page 19, he says something that particularly struck me. He says, quote, Aegon and Alea imply opposite and somewhat complementary attitudes, but they both obey the same law, the creation for the players of conditions of pure equality denied them in real life. In one way or another, one escapes the real world and creates another, end quote. Because no matter whether you play a game of Aegon or a game of Alea or one that combines the two, in both of these forms of games, you have a situation where the inequalities and uncertainties of daily life do not apply. And instead, you have something that follows uh, very clear structures that is clearly delineated Right, And I find that super interesting. There is a certain perfection that is in, in, these, in the logic of games of Aegon and Alea that doesn't exist outside of them. I would agree. And I think that they're both, in as much as uh, Aegon is striving for equality, I think that you could say that games of Alea or games where Alea is a, a, a large factor in it, there is this underlying understanding that um, that is what is fair. If mm. if fate goes one way or the other, we have no input there. Therefore, it is just or fair, right? Or, or almost like the the injustice of it makes it all just. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that it's it's in a way that doesn't exist in reality, where we we may have rules that we try to follow, but certain things certain external factors will come in and say, well, to hell with the rules. That's not how this particular situation is going to go. And I think both of these um, classifications of games are our attempt or are just something that happens naturally, our hope to make things codified and to make sense. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it is also the case that real life is often not fair and right. chances are not equal. It's it's not an equal chance of whether you're going to get the job or not. Or mm. um, let's say in the in the big economic scheme of you know trying to to make it at least to a certain degree of wealth so that you can be comfortable uh, and secure, uh, that is not chances are not equal uh, right. for for people. And of course, um, I think it's a little bit of a simplification to say that in Aegon they are because not everyone has the same chances and opportunities to train. 
uh, to let's say become a professional sprinter or athlete or, or a chess player. Of course, that is that is also not the case. But within that, the rules of the game, you know that between these two players, let's say between these two chess players, whether they are you know uh, a university professor or the captain of a cruise ship or <laughs> whatever, you know, right. it doesn't matter. Um, these two people are completely equal in that they have the exact same set of moves at their disposal. And I think that is kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm romanticizing it, maybe I'm idealizing it, maybe I'm just a communist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have any particular objection to any of those things. So, <laughs> so I think... Studying communism. <laughs> uh, but yes, there is something, <clears throat> I mean, not to get too derailed with with Kawa because there's a lot of great stuff to go into here, but I do think that... Um, it, it speaks to the greater question of why do we play games like this? And I do think mm. that there is a there is a sense of um, of comfort or justice that maybe we don't get in real life that is provided in games like games of Aegon, games of Alea, games where they are mixed together in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and maybe that is a good reasoning to explain something like escape uh, escapism, why mm. people might say. Um, it makes me feel good to play a game, not because it's like a, a, a thing of, of violence or because I can beat others or something, but because I have the experience of being able to be in control or at least having the feeling of, I can do this. Yes. If I fight that boss in Dark Souls or in Bloodborne, if I'm, if I'm careful enough, if I'm persistent, if I'm disciplined enough, then I can do it. And I think that is a, a profoundly reassuring uh, promise that many of us don't have in our in our real life. Yes. Now, uh, there it goes a step further though when it comes to slipping into fictional roles because so far we've spoken about competition, Aegon, and games of chance, Alea. Now there is a third category, mimicry. Quote page nineteen: Play can consist not only of deploying actions or submitting to one's fate in an imaginary milieu but of becoming an illusory character oneself and of so behaving, end quote. Big words that say mimicry is basically role-playing, right? Yeah. And I think on the topic of escapism, uh, this is something that I think speaks to people very easily with video games in particular. You mentioned Dark Souls and Bloodborne. There is something, there is something gratifying to put yourself in the role of the avatar to say, perhaps I, Dan Hughes, couldn't do this thing, but the character that I am portray uh, that is portrayed on the screen that I am controlling can, and that mimicry is very satisfying. And we see it not only in video games, but I think in <laughs> in a lot of real life situations that Kawa mentions. For example, when children uh, children like to imitate grown-ups and imitate their roles. Obviously, the examples that he uses here are clearly from the 60s, which is like they imitate the mother by doing the laundry, basically pretending to cook like with, with fake fake plastic kitchen stuff. And they imitate the father by trying to become a soldier or something or by fumbling around with a, an imaginary rifle or whatever. <laughs> so uh, this, these, these are things but that are deeply inscribed into us as human beings. Yes. Imitating what we desire and uh, what role models are to us. Also... Theater, theater plays are a perfect example of mimicry because there are actors who passionately step out of their own selves into the role of another. 
And the interesting thing that uh, Calois observes here, the goal is not to deceive. The goal is not to convince the audience or to convince another person that you are indeed the character, right? You're not... Right. You're, you're, uh, you wouldn't say, oh, uh, Daniel Craig, he doesn't claim to be James Bond and make you fall into believing he is James Bond. Everyone knows that he's not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, he, that that's a fictional <laughs> character that he's playing. But that is fine because as an audience, you are also under the obligation, I'm going to phrase it as an obligation, or it has often been called a contract as well, that uh, you have to submit yourself to this uh, supposed deception that you agree to say, okay, I'm going to agree to pretend that that is real for the enjoyment of everyone or for the intellectual stimulation of everyone or whatever, right? Right. And I do think that it is, it is a contract where um, everybody agrees that what they are participating in, viewing, seeing is not reality, but it is, as uh, Calois would call it, an imaginary universe, something that we are we are all collectively engaging in, um, but all also understand is not real life. Yeah. And I think this goes from such things like you mentioned when you play Bloodborne, then um, you basically identify to a certain degree with that that avatar, the hunter that you're playing. Um, you are involved in the narrative. I think there's also something to be said about mimicry being, you know, when you are emotionally involved um, mm. in a game. So you're basically, to a certain degree, when you see, let's say, uh, Joel um, have a, a, I'm just using a fictional example now, Joel have a breakdown in The Last of Us, mm. then um, that is something then you feel for him. It is a certain form of mimicking the emotions of that that fictional character. And it goes up to the point of actually role-playing yourself when you are, for example, on a World of Warcraft server. There are mm. some World of Warcraft servers out there where people are role-playing, right? Where you can only participate in the chat if you speak in a language that is in accordance with the law of World of Warcraft. Have you ever done that? I have, yes. Um, I have, I've done that as well. It was fun. When I played uh, when I played World of Warcraft with my brother, um, we gravitated towards the role playing servers because we found that they were uh, they were more pleasant to interact with. Because mm. um, on the the non role playing servers, it's very clear. Uh, the, how should I put this? There's something there's something charming about the acknowledgement of the imagined universe that Kalwa talks about. When you don't acknowledge that, or when you go in the opposite direction, when you acknowledge that it is imaginary, but you still participate in it, there's something, um, maybe the game is still fun, but there is some some kind of disconnection you feel with it. Whereas when my brother and I would play on those role-playing servers, we weren't going crazy talking like medieval knights, but we would talk as we imagined our characters would talk. And there is something very pleasant about stepping into that role and mimicking the world of World of Warcraft. I can totally relate to that. Mm. I always found it a little bit distracting when I, in my very brief period of playing World of Warcraft, when I had this chat window where constantly like all kinds of off-topic messages uh, from <laughs> a guild, you know, would just like flow across the screen and usually just close it down. And I had a quite different experience in when I went to a server to actually role play 
where I didn't make it past the first area at all. Mm. But I remember that even before doing anything like fighting, I coincidentally ran into another character and we had like a lengthy conversation and spend like a, like let's say two hours exploring just the area around the town and so on a that's little great. bit together yeah. role playing really really interesting that's mimicry at work yes and i think that um not every not every game needs this not every game needs to have that maybe level of mimicry but i do think that in a game like world of warcraft or say final fantasy 14 or any of these you know, MMORPGs where you're interacting with other people, I'm not surprised that that's your memory of World of Warcraft because I yeah. think that those are the more, those are the standout moments where you feel like you were, you were really part of what you were experiencing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that is my most fond, my fondest memory of, of World of Warcraft. Now, the last category, Illinks. Um, those are games that, quote, page 23, are based on the pursuit of vertigo <laughs> and which consist of an attempt to momentarily destroy the stability of perception and inflict a kind of voluptuous panic upon an otherwise lucid mind. In all cases, it is a question of surrendering to a kind of spasm, seizure, or shock which destroys reality with sovereign brusqueness, end quote. Surrender to the seizure. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really hardcore, I must yes. say. Well, a fitting name, Illinx, sounds very, uh, very imposing, doesn't it? Yeah, I think Illinx isn't that. It comes um, from the, I think, doesn't it come from the word of um, like a whirlwind? I think uh, he, Kawa mentions that it's... Um, it's from the uh, whirlpool, I think, a whirlpool. in Greek. Yes, mm, a whirlpool, um, uh, 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 which is important to note because that is a if you were if you were ever to be caught in a whirlpool, you would have no control. You would be terrified, and you would imagine that you were going to be dying very soon. Yeah, um, and, and, and please yeah. don't think of a whirlpool that you have in your modern uh, modern uh, public baths, where it's just like a little <laughs> bit of bubbly stuff, but actually, where, you know, where the water goes around in circles, right? And yes, where it uh, drags you down in the middle. Yes, a, a a proper you know whirlpool from the Odyssey or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there is, I think, um, I think the um, the easiest way to understand this would be um, thrill rides or um, games games or experiences where uh, again with sort sort of with mimicry, you acknowledge that you're in this world where. Truly, nothing can actually hurt you, but you simulate that kind of <laughs> that fear or terror. And an example he uses are um, children's games where maybe you just you spin around like crazy, <laughs> yeah. Or or a more adult thing, a theme park ride where you you go on a roller coaster and you think you're experiencing falling, but you know somewhere in the back of your head, hopefully, it's not actually going to kill you. <laughs> Yeah, and then you, you come out. You come out of that of that ride, and then you're like green in the face because you just had a portion of fries beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then you experience the secondary horror of <laughs> yeah, the secondary horror of, of searching the next bathroom in that theme park 
and then you realize it's not as hygienic as everything else looks. Uh, and it's just, <laughs> oh, uh, you drag down into the whirlpool. Things get worse yeah. and worse. <laughs> that is the beauty of Illinx. Yes. But yeah, it, it goes from such things. It, it goes to it's bungee jumping, the thrill, mm. the excitement of, of jumping from somewhere high when you know you're going to be caught and be safe. And when it comes to uh, to video games, I thought of like horror games. Yes. Illinx is basically the explanation, Kawa's explanation for why we would enjoy a horror game because we appreciate that kind of shock, that kind of, well, terror, spasm, a seizure in the widest sense of the word. <laughs> you get, you definitely get scared. Why would you want to get scared and frightened? Well, because it's just, it's in the form, in the context of play, it's a way to, as Kawa says, in a particularly psychoanalytical manner, I would say, it is a way to give some space to the desire for, quote, disorder and destruction, a drive which is normally repressed, end mm. quote. Yes, this this sort of, I mean, I think we all we all repress the the fear of death that maybe looms over us at any given time. So, yeah, there is something. Um, uh, this is why I, I I really enjoyed this reading piece because you can you can tell that there is an underlying um, conversation that Calois seems to be having with the concept of fate and f almost and fatality in a sense too. This idea that we're all uh, these games that we engage in have some kind of underlying understanding that um, things are, are not fair. Things are unjust and that uh, everything ends at a certain point. And I think Illinx is a really, uh, incredible example of not only do they end at some point, sometimes they end terribly. And wouldn't it be interesting to simulate that and see what that may feel like? Yeah. And to, to have an experience of the, let's say, fragility of your own body, to feel mm. the physicality of your senses and how they can be completely disorganized and disoriented and you struggle to regain them. Why would people run in a circle or spin in a circle until they're completely dizzy? But yet at children, we used to do that quite a lot. Mm. I can even say one example, uh, one school example. Um, I think I mentioned this in, uh, I had a, a podcast before this one, which is Pixel Discourse. And we mm. did a, a, a reading circle of Roger Kawa in German there as well. And um, that was the first time when I remembered that story. When we were children in school, we used to do play this game which is a terrible game, where you put your fist with your knuckles on the table and then someone else takes a coin and flicks it against your knuckles so that they crack open and start bleeding. <laughs> and we used to do that. That was so dumb. It was so dumb, but that's part of Illinx, right? You, yes. You try to hold your breath as long as you can or you try to endure this coin flick and whoever can take more pain wins. This is a a form of literally the the drive of uh, destruction yes. finding its place in the form of illings. And I think uh, if we want to take it into the realm of video games, you mentioned horror, of course. And yeah. I think that, uh, you know, especially now with um, the way that games are being produced, there is a certain um, barrier to entry in that, in that it's a question, and the question is, why would you do this to yourself? Mm. Um, playing a game like uh, Resident Evil Village, which, as tongue-in-cheek as it is, has some really heart-pounding moments in it. And um, 
I think most people, if they were asked, would you like to go to a village where there are a lot of vam- uh, uh, werewolves and there's a vampire lady and you could die at any moment, most people would say, no, thank you all. I'd rather have a weekend in. But they may play that game because it's it's fun to experience some terror like that. Yeah, I mean, that almost sounds like my, like my last vacation <laughs> to the UK. <laughs> Uh, This is especially strong in such things like virtual reality, where we try to embrace completely a sensation of the virtual or an experience of the virtual that disorients us entirely. I feel even that with virtual reality, um, games that predominantly rely on illinks are coming back to the forefront, such as the, I don't know how it's called exactly, but this, this game where you just walk a plank over a gigantic rift in between buildings. Oh, and you just walk on this like small wooden plank and it's all about just triggering your fear of heights. Wow. And there there are tons of videos on on YouTube where people play that VR game and then they just, you know, they think they can jump off or they think they'll fall and then they plummet against the living room wall and and then everyone's shocked (laughs) and it ends up on fail army. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, virtual reality, I think, brings that impact a little bit closer to us where games try to emphasize or re-emphasize this this physicality, right? And this disorientation. So, Wow. Now, we went through quite a lot already. We've got two more to go, which is Ludus and um, Paedia. But um, maybe before we do that, we could do a brief application of all these these four categories that we've explored so far. Because I would like to give you an example, dear listeners out there, of uh, Fortnite. Mm. Fortnite, which I, I always use to illustrate how these categories actually work. Um you first you'd think about okay so Fortnite which category do I put this in, and I think that might have been that might be of value to think about that because there are clearly dominant aspects of Fortnite that you could use to assign it to a category. But I think the even more interesting question is how how all of these different categories these four different categories are all more or less involved in something like Fortnite. If you think of Aegon, it's pretty clear. Fortnite is a battle royale game. I don't have to explain it. All of you know it. (laughs) You fight against one another and only one person or one team can win. There are also equal chances. Everyone starts out without any equipment and with just your little pickaxe. We've got Alea, which is chance because you have certain like random distribution of loot. I think there are certain spots where always the same equipment spawns and there are always the spots where all of the players jump. Uh, If you're a (laughs) beginner, you don't have a chance there at all. But uh, the equipment is to a certain degree random, if I recall correctly, like the loot that you get in Fortnite. Mm. Then you have, oh oh yeah, random is also the way in which the, I think it's called the, is it the the battle bus at the beginning that flies flies across the island? Depending on where you drop, right? Yeah, it always flies in a different uh, on, on a different axis over that over that island. So you can't you, you can choose freely where to land, but you need to fly further then, and you're going to hit the ground mm. later. And obviously, in this competition, it's all about hitting the ground early. So yeah, it's also a bit of alea when it comes to where which direction the battle bus will fly. Mimicry, Fortnite really lives, and I mean literally lives economically off of people purchasing costumes and designs. Yes, to all make, different tie-ins, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the different times they, to make the character yours. And even if it's just a color package or, or a new backpack or pair of trousers or whatever, <laughs> it is a form of like imbuing the game with a little bit of, an, of a role-playing aspect. So that brings in mimicry as well, apart, apart from such things, obviously, that you can then play, I don't know, Spider-Man or... I, I, I don't I don't play Fortnite if I'm being and, very honest with you. <laughs> I I don't either. But I will I will say that um another huge part of that mimicry is that I don't I don't know that Fortnite would be as popular if it weren't for uh certain Twitch streamers and YouTubers who people yeah. playing it may also be mimicking. Um exactly. this idea of, of playing this game and kind of knowing the ins and outs of it. Exactly. Ninja, for example. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And Illinks is a very clear part of it because Fortnite starts with you literally jumping out of the sky onto this island. So you have this rush of, of vertigo that, of course, you get very accustomed to over time. But when you start playing Fortnite, you're first like, whoa, I'm flying, basically. I would also say that there's there's a difference. Um, there's something different about a battle royale to, say, a shooter like Counter-Strike, where Counter-Strike, you, you respawn, you come back, um, and so you have in the back of your mind that, yes, I could, I could get killed at any moment, but then I may have a, a chance to come back and get revenge, but a game, a battle Royale where there is a, it's understood that one person will win. I mm. think there is, there is something illinks about that. This idea that I'm, I, there's a very good chance that I will not come out of this, you know? Yeah. There's a certain finality mm. to it because once you're out, you are out and you hear then. I mean, this is not as pronounced in Fortnite as it is in other Battle Royale games or in games such as Call of Duty or, or even, I would say, Battlefield is probably the strongest example mm. where you when you hear, like, the bullets flying around you or you hear the impact of a grenade or whatever. Uh, this is all part of Illings as well. It gets your blood pumping, basically. It mm. gets you to lean forward in your in your seat. So I think Fortnite is a good example as it very clearly combines all of these four uh, categories and that points out, I think to me, it, it makes it clear that the application is not so much to think about, okay, so we've got a game that's Aegon, we've got a game that's Alea, we've got a game that's Mim uh, Mimicry and one that's Illinks, but to think about games in their entirety as um, a combination of various different types of, of games. And there's another axis that uh, Kalwa brings in here and we uh, have to go through these briefly because this is going to be a long episode anyway <laughs> for a treat <laughs> it's all, yeah it's all good info though i think uh, yeah, yeah yeah and if we do it we do it properly so uh, you signed up for reading roger Kalwa. So. <laughs> that's right and i i will say this too this may be a good point to interject with this um one thing that i uh that i always love about about game studies in particular and i, I guess you could say this about any academic um field but there are certain things I think that we take for granted where yeah. um, I would say that all four of these categories are things that we can all very naturally intuit. And yet that doesn't mean that we shouldn't put the amount of effort into um, discussing them that we are now. Because as Kawa did in this, in this reading that we're doing, they may be intuitive, but it's important to understand the distinctions and the classifications and why we use them. Because... I think that if you are a Fortnite player and you've just had us go through these four different um, breakdowns that Kawa has given us, I would argue you, you will probably enjoy your understanding of the game just a little bit more now that you know kind of what it's engaging 
uh, with you, these levels it's engaging with you on. Yeah, and you can do that with any game that you play. And often, mm. I must say, uh, when I analyze a game, I often find it helpful to apply, not necessarily in all its rigor, but to apply this classification to a game to see what kind of elements actually this game consists of. So I think it's it's very it's a nice approach to start understanding games and to start understanding their differences. But we have to introduce the final two terms, which are ludus and paedia. We can do that pretty quickly because paedia is a form of free play and ludus is a form of rule-based uh, rule games. So um, this is a distinction that is um, diagonal to these other categories, right? Or orthogonal, I think. Orthogonal. orthogonal. So you don't distinguish between paedia and layer. Those two are not comparable in that sense. But you have paedia as, let's say, a, a manner of play that is pretty free in the way it flows. Kawa says it's when, you know, when cats play with wool yarn or when children are pulling faces or when you're doing some role playing and you also, you don't have a clear rule structure except for, okay, please stay within the confines of this role, but you don't have a clear set of rules that applies. Whereas ludus, on the other hand, that is something that where rules are very clearly established. He, as an example, Kawa says hide and seek is such a thing. Hide and seek is a game that's very strictly regulated in the rule system. <laughs> and once you know, once someone breaks the rules, you know, there's going to be catastrophe on that schoolyard. In, in sports, you have clear rules. Um, Kawa even says guessing the culprit in a crime novel. I'm not so sure whether that's the best example to give, but I think you wanted to have something revolving around mimicry. Um, but yeah, ludus games are games that are often standardized, games that you can repeat an infinite number of times and that always lead to different results. If you play chess, you always play with the same rules. There are some alterations that you can make, but the basic rules are always the same. And it always starts with the same kind of uh, initial scenario in chess. And it can lead to all kinds of different outcomes. Every chess game is, in that sense, a little bit different. So that's the difference between Paedia on the one hand and Ludus on the other. Yes, and I think that um, just to talk on the, uh, uh, the mimicry example, um, the idea of sort of finding out the culprit in a, in a novel. I think that's an example that um, does not work for Kawa, but does work for video games in the sense mm. that if you are engaging with, with mimicry in a, in a ludus-oriented video game, there is uh, something very gratifying about feeling as though you are the detective um, or in a psychological horror game, you are the person putting the psychological horror together um, and using the the rules within that system to come to that conclusion. And I think we've all had that moment where you're playing a game where you you figure out the twist right before the twist is revealed. And there is a very satisfying feeling that would not come in a, a paedia situation, but would come in a ludus situation because of the strict regiment. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think there is also, there are definitely games that encourage strongly encourage something like paedia. Mm. Uh, if you think of, my first thought went to Animal Crossing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is which is a very, or The Sims, you know, any kind of, let's say, very openly conceptualized simulation game. 
um, in what we may, Animal Crossing. Well, I'm sorry, what, what we may call a sandbox, right? Something where, yeah. or a simulator of some kind where you're, you're just having a, having a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even up to something like, you know, going crazy in, in GTA five. Right. Because it's also just a sandbox and Paedia is just, you don't follow the the goals of what the game actually wants you to do. You don't try to accomplish the next mission, but you just run around and shoot people in the face for fun, for example. <laughs> right? And, yes. and uh, Or you just see what happens if you drive a car all the way to the end of the pier and just plummet it into the ocean as far as you possibly can. These are things that are um, very, I would say, that very much goes into, leans into like a, a Pa- a Paedia style form of Illinx, for example. Mm. Um, and Ludus, on the other hand, is also present in these games if you rigidly follow the structure of the game, but it apply- it's always a continuum. It's always a continuum. You always have elements of Paedia and Ludus, and the only question is where on, where on the ends of, these, of, these, of this continuum you land. Yes, which I think um, I think of something... Uh, to bring it back to video games, I think of my experience with uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which I think falls uh, in this continuum that you're talking about really kind of beautifully, because on the one hand, you have the option to just explore Hyrule and go around and, and you know, um, cut down trees or find weapons or, you know, all the all the fun stuff of just kind of being in this world and interacting with it. Then there's the... Uh, the narrative that you do engage with um, where there are certain objectives that you have to follow, people you have to talk to, um, certain rules you have to follow. You can't go get the master sword if you don't have a certain number of hearts, things like this, where mm. it it beautifully melds together where your instinct to engage with the kind of paedia of it, the fun can sometimes lead you to the ludus portion of it where yeah. you you have that structure brought about. So... I think video games have a great tendency to, as you say, exist on this continuum and, and meld things really in a in a beautiful, intuitive way. Yeah, you could also say that um, something like Breath of the Wild, it allows a wide spectrum of exploration on this continuum between Paedia and Ludus because you can play it as a very rule-based uh, goal oriented game or mm. you can go all the way into you know exploration physics uh, exploration experimentation even yes. you know you can try to break the rules though that's an entirely different uh, subject altogether but i hope that through our reading of roger Calois' uh, man play and games specifically the chapter the classification of games now that dear listeners you have in we i hope that we've uh, stuck to a promise here that we've lived up to our promise to tell you that these six terms, Aegon, Alea, Mimicry, Illinx, Ludus, and Paedia, that you know them by heart now, hopefully. <laughs> um, and I would say, shall we wrap it up with that? I mean, we've been, wow, we went so far over time with this main story, but reading such, maybe our reading episodes are just going to be a little bit longer. I think I think they maybe deserve it. Um, you know, yeah. we, we usually like to talk about uh, news or things that catch our eye, but um, you know why? Uh, uh, why take away from this great um, reading that we did together? And maybe uh, instead of going into side quests, we can think more about these six terms. And uh, we can ask you, dear listeners, the next game that you play, think about what was the mix like? How much mm. Aegon was in it? How much Alea? How much 
Uh, Elinx, did you feel? I would really love to hear um, recent gaming experiences where these things jump out to you. Oh, but Dan, we can go into side quests, shouldn't we? We can oh. just go over time. Yes, well, I would love to. <laughs> I thought, I thought maybe you, that's, uh, no, that's what I you were getting at. But yes, I'd love I to go into side quests. Fine. I have nothing but yeah, time. Yeah, okay, let's do that. <laughs> let's do, I've brought some interesting side quests. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted, now I've prepared them. <laughs> well, no, let's I mean, jump in. Yeah, let's jump into it and do some side questing. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we are looking into video game discourse. We read all the internet and we bring some nice gaming anecdotes, whatever this week might have brought us. And uh, this time it has brought us something rather big, which is actually the biggest leak the biggest twitch leak in the history of the platform which is going to be our number one so the article that i'm mainly going to reference here is the entirety of twitch has reportedly been leaked by chris scullion on videogameschronicle.com on wednesday the biggest leak in the history of twitch has taken place there was an anonymous hacker who went to 4chan and posted a torrent link of 125 gigabytes of files. And these files are publicly available and can be downloaded by anyone. And they include the entirety of Twitch's uh, source code with the comment history, quote, going back to its early beginnings, end quote. They also include the creator payouts from 2019, quote from that article. The list shows that 81 Twitch streamers have been paid more than $1 million by Twitch since August 2019, end quote. And I, I went to several other articles as well. One that I find, find noteworthy here and that what to put in briefly is by Ed Nightingale from Eurogamer. He writes, quote, men dominate the list. In fact, of the top 20, all are men. Pokimane, at 39th on this particular list, is the highest earning woman on the platform. So, end quote. We must keep in mind that, yes, the, the top 20 are entirely uh, men. That's what we found out through this leak as well. Uh, it also entails other things such as the mobile, desktop, and console Twitch clients. It entails proprietary uh, proprietary SDKs and internal AWS services used by Twitch. I'm not quite sure what those what that exactly means. Do you have an idea? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not even going to venture a guess. It's all Greek to me. I think yeah. um, uh, it. Uh, well, I, I said I wouldn't, but if I were to venture a guess, I would say that um, uh, I think that it's it's maybe different different affiliations or different affiliates that that particular people have um but i'm really i'm really not sure because twitch's uh business model is kind of well prior to this kind of secretive anyway so yeah it is it is not secretive anymore no. <laughs> because also uh, every other property that twitch owns has also been leaked including igdb and curseforge these two platforms i know at least um, mm. Also, uh, the leak entails an unreleased Steam competitor they apparently planned, and this was, I think, rumored for quite a while. They planned to release an alternative client that you could get games through that was supposed to compete with Steam. It's codenamed as Vapor, and it's held by Amazon Game Studios. 
And it also includes Twitch's internal red teaming tools. So these are tools that the company uses to basically uh, attack its own system to find potential loopholes that hackers might exploit. So this is a huge leak. It's already huge as it is. It is also titled as part one. So the hacker at least implies there that there might be a part two out there or maybe several parts that he has right. not yet released or that they have not yet released. And by now, Twitch has already confirmed the leak. They went to Twitter and said, quote, We can confirm a breach has taken place. Our teams are working with urgency to understand the extent of this. We will update the community as soon as additional information is available. Thank you for bearing with us. End quote. Now, the motive of this leak is still pretty unclear. Uh, for example, there has been recently a debate about, you know, uh, hate raids where, you know, users would move on from one stream to another to basically disrupt the streams of people who are part of a, you know, marginalized group. Yeah. Um, the, the only motive, so that it's unclear whether this is related in any way. But the hacker clearly stated, quote, that, that the goal was, quote, to foster more disruption and competition in the online video game streaming space because the community, the Twitch community here, is a disgusting, toxic cesspool, end quote. Yes, which um, it's so, so I, I would consider myself in various stages of being terminally online that's a Twitch phrase that people use. Yeah. Um, where I, I know a lot of. Uh, you mentioned the hate raids, and you mentioned, you know, this sort of toxic nature. It's frustrating to me when I hear things like this because, as you say, the motive is not clear. Because if that that phrase, particularly coming from someone who posts something to 4chan, could mean any number of different things. Yeah, and n none of them are very savory, um, in my opinion. So, I, I, I'm not going to speculate what the true motive of this was, but it certainly seems um, driven by something other than just transparency. Yeah, yeah, that might be the case. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a very a very intentional operation, and the breach, according to Twitch, was also fairly recent. So it must have been somewhere throughout the last week. Uh, mm. Presumably on Monday, I think that was at least the speculation. But yes, um, it's it is definitely a big thing. Well, and in fairness to Twitch, because uh, not a phrase that I use too often, but in fairness to Twitch, <laughs> um, I I do think it's commendable that they owned it early, because uh, the action necessary for people was um, people needed to go in and change their password, and and they needed to you know, sort of re-protect re themselves. So I do think that it was a good thing that that tweet was made as early as it was because if it had come out, for example, today or, you know, this coming week, who knows how many people would have been in jeopardy at that point. Exactly. I think this is the perfect opportunity to all of you dear listeners out there, if you haven't done so already, to go ahead and change your password. And of course, please enable two-factor authentication. This is such an important safety measure because even if your password is technically leaked somewhere, and this can happen, this yeah. I just checked recently, my, all my accounts I checked on um, haveibeenpwned.com, this, this website that shows whether your data has been part of some kind of leak. 
Yeah. Um, and actually, it was some of my data was in some leaks uh, like years ago, but still, oh, wow. um, even if your password is then leaked in some form, and you might not find out about this, not in a timely manner at least, then people would still need access to your phone in order to access your account. And you will get notified if someone tries to access your account from a place that's not usually your your home. So I think um, that's the most important security measure. Change your password and activate two-factor authentication right now. We should maybe we should maybe look for more Twitch stories in the future because Twitch is definitely um, I mean it has its roots in video games of course it used to be just in TV and and it was it really I think it started as a speed running um, platform so it is very tied to video games and video game culture um, even today and I think that one thing that is um, that can't be overlooked is that. If the the payment breakdowns are to be believed, then there is a very large disparity between the amount of money made by the men on the platform versus the women. Yeah, and this I, I also think it should be noted here. And Stefan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the the payment breakdown that that was not including donations, ad affiliations. It was simply Twitch payouts. Um, that is if correct. If you were a partner. Yeah. That is correct. So, so you, you have yeah. to keep in mind that people who make, let's say, over a million dollars just by Twitch payments, uh, that means there are still there's a lot more money coming in through such things like one-time payments that happen while users watch the stream, ad revenue, merchandise, other kind of subscription services. So that means essentially um, we can assume that a lot of people um, that are very prominent Twitch creators are rich. That's not a, a controversial yes. suspicion. Yes, <laughs> right. And yes. I think, but my my point in saying that too is that um, the reason it's important, I think, to note um, the dis- the payment disparity is because the payments are solely the Twitch pay- payouts. So there is something uh, internal there that is causing some kind of um, difference between. Men, women, I think also uh, minorities, people of color, things like that. So there's a, a number of different reasons that that could be true from maybe a, a, a business standpoint. Maybe it's just that white men watch Twitch more and therefore are, are a bigger um, platform for it. But uh, there's a number of uh, – all this opens up a lot of questions to how Twitch operates, uh, which is I think the important um, door that we're opening here. Yeah, which creators it is also more inclined to support and to prominently Mm. feature. And it also raised some eyebrows when it came to the question, how is it possible that that Twitch creators or a lot of Twitch creators earn more than the people that make the games that they play on Twitch? Yes. So this is another this is another question, another imbalance maybe in the industry that the people that have their faces on camera on Twitch um, are a lot more inclined. I'm not saying that you get rich when you when you open up your Twitch account and start streaming. This is for what it's worth. It's actually the total exception that you can even live on the money that you make with Twitch. There's so many more accounts there that have like zero dollars basically yes. Uh, yes. on Twitch or just a very minor amount. But um, indeed. It is. Uh, it, there seems to be a, a pretty strong imbalance between the way that uh, creators earn money on Twitch and the way that developers earn money who make these games. 
It is strange, isn't it? It's almost as if, um, and I, I don't like making these comparisons too often because they're different media. However, it is interesting to think that you would make more money than a director by watching his or her film. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that strange? It's an odd world that we live in. So It, it is I, an odd yeah. world. So I think that the argument that a lot of Twitch streamers, I've heard them make this, is that um, by playing these games, it is spreading the word of the games, right? And so, I, uh, you know, there's the old adage, all press is good press. Um, but but it, it does seem kind of topsy-turvy that an indie developer who put a lot of work into a game is completely dwarfed by the amount of money that's being made by someone playing it. Yeah, it it is certainly strange. It is, um, as far as I'm aware, also an idiosyncrasy in the domain of video game culture that such a thing happens, that such a profound imbalance is possible. Um, I also want to say in all fairness that I don't underestimate at all the work that goes into, you know, regularly streaming, that mm. goes into being entertaining, being attractive for an audience. I know that's a lot of work, so I, I have uh, most profound respect for dedicated streamers. Um, but yes, it's just the question is just of whether it is worth that amount of money. Yes, and I I completely agree because um, you know to to be on to be on video and to be scrutinized by that many people it's certainly not an easy job. Um, although I was so I was talking with um, although I watch a lot of Twitch content I'm not myself on Twitch, but a friend of mine Jeff um, he he is on Twitch and he interacts with the community. And I asked him about this and through our conversation, you know, we talked about a number of the things that Stefan and I have been talking about here, but the question kind of came up, which is, um, should these creators, should it be known how much they're making? Is it a, is it a, um, a question of, of privacy that they should, uh, have their kind of wages, um, secret, or is there some kind of, um, you know, we, we, for example, we know how much uh, actors make on certain films. Is this a comparable thing or should they be left to their own devices? So th I think that question came up in addition to um, if we sh if we should know about Twitch's system and their business plan and who they prefer and how they um, set up who gets the limelight or who gets more payouts or what have you, should we then also know what those payouts are? on an individual level. And I, I think I struggle with that a little bit. Yeah, me too. I wonder whether it should be mandatory. Um, but also, on the other hand, it is true that it's... I would say maybe we can draw the line where we could say only then when it is of some kind of, let's say, public importance. Mm. Because we don't need to know the income of every single person that streams on Twitch. But right. maybe it would be good to have something like a list of the, you know, of like, you know, the, at least the top 20 or the top 50 uh, Twitch creators so we can have an understanding a little bit of what these figures are. Just like it might be very much a matter of public interest how much of a bonus a CEO of a company gets, especially mm. when you want to think about what they do at the company in order, because it is of public interest in a sense that the wealth on this planet is unequally distributed and that maybe right. if, if it reaches a certain limit, oh God, I'm so communist today. If, <laughs> <laughs> got a communist streak in this episode here. If, if, if it extends a certain, <laughs> if it goes beyond what is, what is at, at reasonable, mm. 
mm. um, then I think it's definitely worth thinking about whether whether there might be something wrong with the system. And I think there is something wrong with the system. Again, communism. But um, it <laughs> is. By the way, I'm not I'm not sincerely a communist, but. Um, I do think there is something wrong with the way that capitalism works and that brings very few people to the top, right? Uh, and I think it might be a matter of public interest in order to find new forms of uh, uh, regulating this and maybe bouncing things I, back a little bit to keep it in check. I think that that's the key word is, is the regulation of it because yeah. um, you can't regulate something which is not transparent. And mm. so I don't, again, I don't claim to understand the motives of the person who did this. I do think that if you were to take, um, and I also, I, I think that it's um, obviously dangerous to reveal people's personal information like this. You know, the term doxing um, is a very, it's a scary idea. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't, I don't condone that. And I think that anyone who does that is committing a crime of some kind, um, or at least a, a breach of morality. But um I do think that when we obfuscate uh, the the money behind these systems, there's no sense of how we can. Um, <laughs> talking of of Calois, uh, there's no sense of rules. There's no sense of 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 a system that we can kind of observe and and control or at least take part in because everything is secretive. So. Should I think? Do I think that every Twitch streamer should reveal their income? Of course not. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, as much as I would say, no person working in a different sector of the world should reveal their income if they don't feel that they need to or that they want to. But I do think it's important to understand um, Twitch is not just some fun website where uh, you know people go to to speedrun anymore. It's a massive industry owned by Amazon. <laughs> So I think that there is a sense of people want to know what's going on behind the curtain. Yeah, and it is also important to keep in mind that these people when when you think of um when you think of of people like Ninja or of PewDiePie and so on, the, let's say the big players in the streaming game. I don't actually know how big PewDiePie is when it comes to streaming. I know he's very popular on YouTube, but I think yeah. he is, right? Well, I would say that uh, XQC is his equivalent on on Twitch. He's the um, the other. I, I don't know if he's from Sweden, but the other yeah. kind of Nordic guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the PewDiePie too. So yes, yep. it's, the thing is just that um, if if you reach um, such a such a wide audience, and if you have such a huge income through streaming, then you're I would argue that most of these people, if not all of these people that are, let's say, in the top 20 or top 50 of uh, Twitch creators um, are not necessarily, uh, that's not your private person um, in, in that sense. That's not a person who just sits in their, in their living room and casually throws on their PS5 stream. But those are actually usually, I would say, companies. Those are people that have their own companies, that have employees that work for them. Mm -hmm. And so on and so forth. So I think in that sense that when it comes to the level that you're basically becoming um, like a corporation or a company, then it is important to do, you know, earnings reports just like any other big corporation would. Just like Blizzard has to transparently declare their their, their earnings and their spendings, at least to, to investors and in their company reports, Twitch streamers. It might at least be a consideration of to which degree Twitch streamers would have to do that too, mm. at least at a certain point when it reaches a, let's say, um, 
a commercial level that's not like just a small a small company, but a proper big corporation that makes millions of dollars. I yeah, that's a great distinction to make, Stefan, because we're not saying that um, my friend Jeff, for example, yeah. should not should not be held to the same standard that someone like uh, Hassan should be, right? Exactly. On but you're you're absolutely right because they are usually the face of a group of people who are putting that that show together, just like any other production. And uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And we'll see where this goes. Uh, I feel like we're, we have a lot of stories lately where we say, well, this is a huge thing that's happened. Let's see what happens in the next few months. <laughs> yes, we will keep yeah. an eye on it. There will definitely be more information. I assume that we'll know a little bit more next week when it comes to, will there be a part two of this leak? What does it entail? What is the motive? And what does Twitch have to say about this? And especially because they obviously want to prevent such leaks to happen in the future. So uh, we're mm. going to keep you updated as soon as we get new information. Number two. Number two. So uh, I would not be um, upholding my social contract if I didn't mention that uh, Sora is from Kingdom Hearts is the final character introduced to Smash Brothers Ultimate. Um, yes, so I won't I won't linger on it because I could, um, as you well know, Stefan. <laughs> but uh, what I what I wanted to bring up was um, a particular feeling that uh, I had had with other characters that were introduced with Smash, uh, introduced to Smash, and it's this sense that there is something about a character from a third party being brought into Smash Brothers that somehow adds a layer of legitimacy to that character. And I know that sounds silly, but I think, listeners, if you have a character, maybe you're particularly close with uh, Banjo and Kazooie, um, mm. or uh, you know, uh, maybe Joker from Persona 5, um, mm. there is a sense that the communities behind those characters, behind those video game properties, are elated and feel like uh, the, the feeling almost seems like a welcome home or an, an acceptance. Um, and I think I hadn't felt that until this reveal trailer came out showing Sora flying over all the other characters and having the music from Kingdom Hearts swell in the background. It was, it was, uh, I, I won't, um, I'm not being funny, but it was a, an emotional moment for me. And I think that it's an interesting phenomenon that Smash has this power to, um, I don't know, put put a stamp of a like it, maybe it's the you know the old Uncle Nintendo stamp of approval on yeah. a on a game that you know they didn't make or something. It does feel like a form of acknowledgement of cultural significance because mm. not any character is gonna just make it into a Smash game, but only those that have been that have earned their credentials mm. over many years. And I think Joker is probably one of the most recent ones, as far as I'm aware. Um, like, one of the characters that is relatively young on this roster. Yes. Uh, and um, Sora now, I think I think it was just a matter of time for, for Sora to, to come onto this roster. Because he just yeah. fits so perfectly in there. He does. And I think it's, a, um, speaking of things that I want to keep an eye out on... Um, it's a matter of time, but it's also a matter of cutting through the immense red tape that Disney, I'm sure, put up to have mm. uh, one of their one of their characters show up. And uh, I wasn't able Wait, to. Wait, Dan, I have a question mm. here. 
Is yes. Sora is Sora a Disney licensed character? Or is that because I know that Donald and Goofy are not in there, right? It's uh, isn't it a, a Square Enix character rather? This is what uh, <laughs> this is the article I wish I had found <laughs> for our side quest because I was trying to ex answer that question, and the only thing that I can I wasn't able to find any breakdown of this or how this happened, but the only thing I can imagine is that. You're right. Sora is more Square Enix than he is Disney. And yet, I do remember that Kingdom Hearts 3 had such a long production time because of Disney Red Tape. And I think we're in a different um we're in a different world with Disney now than we were in 2005 when Kingdom Hearts 2 had come out. Um and so I can only imagine the legal conversations of how much equity do we have in the in this spiky-haired, you know, big-shoed uh, weirdo? So, <laughs> I think. Um, so I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. If there's anything interesting, maybe I'll bring it up later. But I just thought um, there is a. I, I think you're right. I think it is. Um, to your point about Joker, Joker, because when he was introduced, there was also music from Persona Four introduced. Mm. Um, it was uh, it was Joker as the playable character, but there were elements of previous Persona games that were brought into um, Smash Battlefields and and music. So uh, similarly with with uh, Cloud when he was introduced, music yeah. was brought in from Final Fantasy VII. So there is sort of a sense that um, the character is the representative of the series, and they're bringing other elements along with them to whatever extent they're able to. Um, but I, I do think it is sort of a coronation of, all right, you're a video game recognized by Mr. Video Game <laughs> Nintendo. <laughs> now, here's a question. If I have, I've, I've never played Smash, as I mentioned earlier. I, mm. I have actually played one or two matches, but just, uh, you know, for fun with friends. Sure. If I'm sitting at home here and I'm in a pandemic, just hypothetically speaking, and uh, <laughs> let's say there's like a global pandemic going on, and uh, it's not you. really, it's not really a thing that people just you know hang out and you know in the evening with a couple of people on a couch and play Smash. Instead, you would play it primarily on your own. Should I play uh, Smash still? I would say, um, particularly Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Um, this game where Sora has been introduced as the final DLC character. Um, I think it is really fun to play on your own. The, mm. the adventure mode, um, which is called, and this is what another reason Sora is so, it fits so easily into this universe. The, the story mode is called the world of light. Um, and it is a real celebration of all the characters who are in it with a kind of loose narrative, you know, tying everything together. But, um, if there was a game you were to play on your own, I think Ultimate would be the one to do it. Okay. Well, then maybe yeah. I'm going to do that now that it's completed and now that I can comfortably purchase it without knowing that there's going to be more and more stuff added over the coming months. <laughs> but this is basically the full package. And I assume there's probably going to be some kind of thing where you purchase the game and then some kind of like Ultimate Pass or something and then you have everything. I think so. I, the way that they've been doing it is um, you would buy uh, you would buy passes before every character was announced so that when they were announced, you would get them. So I imagine at this point there will be a all-inclusive package you could get. 
Wow. Now I wonder. Um, I mean, now we are we are quite a bit over time, and I've got some thoughts on Kina Bridge of Spirits here, which I've been playing throughout the last week. Now mm. I do wonder whether we should put push these to the next week. What do you th- What do you say? Well, I think uh, I I would be fine to hear your impressions of of Kina, but I if you think that it would uh, um, it would benefit from more time for a side quest next week, I'm happy to talk more in depth then. Well, yeah, because then maybe I, I can say maybe I can say briefly this. I'm going to give brief impressions, and then next week we're going to we can go into it in a little bit more detail. Um, right. So I'm I'm playing Kina Bridge of Spirits. It's a beautiful little game by Ember Lab. Uh, it's their first game. It has this wonderful, you know, Pixar animation design, and it's an like a, a exploration puzzle action game. It's super cute. It, I'm playing it on the highest difficulty level, and the enemies truly pack a punch. Um, it's. It, I often feel like I'm playing a bit of, of, of like a Bloodborne or From Software game there when I'm fighting these enemies. I was going to ask you about that because I saw your captures on Twitter, and I thought that looks like a Dark Souls boss. Yeah, yeah, they they are really not to be underestimated those enemies are <laughs> i often fail quite a few times and you have to learn attack patterns and you have to be precise with your parries and so on you can obviously switch to the easy difficulty and then just run through the game but i actually enjoy it in this combination especially with puzzle exploration and um uh, super tough uh, uh, combat encounters and so far i'm really enjoying it i think i'm a little bit over half of the way through it's a 40 dollar game and um I would definitely recommend uh, jumping in and enjoying this. It's a PlayStation console exclusive, I think, and it's very enjoyable on the PS5 with very small, you know, technical uh, problems. But I would say uh, more on this next week um, when I'm actually also through with the game. Yes, I'd be excited to hear about it. Yeah, for now, let's round it off and let's thank our listeners, you out there, for listening. If you want to support us, then you know what to do. You can get Studying Pixels Plus. You can visit us on studyingpixels.com. It would be very helpful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about it. Share this episode on social media if you liked it. And submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com. We're looking forward to hear from you and we'll talk again next week. Yes, we'll see you then. 